So the title of tonight's Dharma movie is <laughs> Holding Life Tenderly. And um, I wanted to talk about mindfulness and loving kindness, these two foundation practices that um, will support us <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the journey of the week. And, you know, it's a learning process for all of us, of course. You know, we're, we're all on this path and, and um, uh, sort of as I began to weave my own learning experience in the world with my experience with Dharma, I realized that um, I, I learn differently in different ways. So uh, some people learn, you know, audially and in terms of information, some people are much more pictorial and and uh, I find myself also very visual, so I have, a, I have this little prop, which is about the size of my brain, right? <laughs> and usually it looks like this. You know, given everything, and, and this is what I've heard in interviews, that, that we ha our lives are so full. Our schedules are so full, we carry so much, and it's, this is generally what is floating around in, in, in this thing that we call mind. And this retreat is an opportunity into stillness. And what happens when the stillness is able to affect our mind? the particles begin to settle and the water becomes slightly more clear and incrementally we will be able to see more clearly. So I'm just going to put that there for a while and we'll revisit it maybe later in the retreat. But seeing clearly into our lives and beyond what is usually hidden. So some of the invitations I offered this morning that, that we often take so much for our life for granted. That we often ignore or dismiss or repress. And really the invitation is, is to look a little bit more deeper to see clearly what our experience is, to see clearly how our mind functions, and to see clearly how our heart feels. As I mentioned, the Buddha offered to us that living one full day of mindfulness is more precious than living a hundred years without it. But we tend not to value this preciousness of our life, and we actually actively try to change it. And we do this because we have this conditioned nature of pushing things away that we don't like, and grabbing more and holding on to those things that we do like, that are pleasant. And those things that are relatively neutral in our life, we completely miss, the mind falls off, we get bored, we get indifferent to. 
So we're constantly pushing or pulling or ignoring and manipulating the actual life that's being lived. It's exhausting. And as uh, Arena was, was describing at the end of the morning session, we're actually creating the life we think we should be living as opposed to the life that's being lived. And all of a sudden, we're living a thought and not a life. This is when thought becomes reality. The reality is actually be the thinking process. It's not anything to do with the content. So the invitation of mindfulness allows us to go beyond what we think our lives should be, to get out of the way and let this life be lived and explore what is it that constitutes this thing that we call our lives. And we, we start by just noticing the details of our experience, very gently, the breath. Trying to hold to a neutral object and and if, for example, the breath isn't neutral, we may suggest some body sensation of the touch points of the body in contact with the cushion or the chair. We open to physical sensations, the vibration, the tingling, um, the heat. And we, we open, as, we, as the week unfolds, we'll be opening to the experiences of our feelings and emotions. Not that they're not already there, but we actually bring um, the sharpness of our mindfulness towards them, including also our mental formations, the thoughts, the, um, uh, the mental constructions that we, that we like so much. We bring our mindfulness to, to all of that. So there's a trajectory that we begin to open up to anything that arises in our life. part of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of each and every life. And this is the mindfulness simply meeting the life that's arising for what it is, not pushing it away or not pulling it towards us because we want more. It's just this mindfulness touching our experience, paying attention to. This is kindness the non-manipulation of our life, simply being with what it is in a very gentle way, this paying attention. And I want to really suggest that this paying attention is a profound experience of love, that uh, Stephen and I have two new grandchildren, and I feel this from them viscerally, that if I'm not paying attention to them, they're not experiencing love. Even though I can feel the energy of, of, of the relationship with them, they're not going to feel it. And you can, whether we've had children or not, we've all been children, and we know what it's like not to be paid attention to. 
bringing your mindfulness to your experience is such an act of self-love. The experience of our entire world with our entire heart, a heart that is wide open. The more mindful attention that you give your experience, the more you're offering this profound sense of love that we look for in all sorts of places in the world, whether it's in, in other places or other things or other you know, activities. but you are totally loving yourself and accepting each moment that arises. That's a really deep aspect of self-acceptance. When you don't turn away from a portion of your life. The love that we need is right here and right now. The acceptance we need is right here the acceptance of ourselves. The forgiveness that we need is the ability to forgive ourselves. This is why mindfulness is so precious. This is how it makes our life alive. Directing our full accepting attention to our experience, whether it's in our body, whether it's in our minds, or whether it's in our hearts. And even when judgment arises, even when aversion arises, the invitation, is it possible not to judge the judgment? Is it possible in that moment to simply notice how the experience of judgment is for you. Feeling it in the body, feeling the emotions around it. And it may sound simplistic because it actually is quite simple. In not judging the judgment, you begin to dispel it. You, you, actually, you actually recondition the pattern that is so ingrained us, whether it's our familial conditioning or the conditioning of our culture. It begins to dissolve this incessant story of, of the self-judgmental mind that, that tells us we're not worthy or that we're less than, or even worse, that we're nothing. Because it's just not true. So I'm going to talk, continue to talk about mindfulness and loving-kindness as this interwoven practice. Mindfulness is, is kindness in the form of generosity, giving, the giving of your full attention, that paying attention, that offering of love to yourself. Mindfulness is the kindness of gratitude, that opening to all of this, this, this panoply of experience that, that arises in this life. 
the 10,000 joys and sorrows. Mindfulness is the kindness of compassion. Arena will address this tomorrow night. But as mindfulness meets the sorrow in our life with this gentleness, the only thing that arises is this quivering of the heart, this, this compassionate response. And mindfulness is kindness in the form of forgiveness because it's always in the present moment. Mindfulness is not about the past. So in the present moment, there's a letting go of the sorrows or the regrets. There's a letting go of the worries or, or anxieties of the future. And even if the next moment is unforgiven, just notice which moments are open and free. I had this, a, a direct experience of this, this interweaving of mindfulness and loving kindness uh, in, a, in uh, not a very cognitive way, but um, when I was um, ordained in Thailand, um, I had a preceptor, my abbot, who ordained me. And one of the one of the sort of reorganizing experiences that I went through was was to go on alms round, Pindapat. It was you could as soon as as soon as I began to do it, which is walking for your food every morning, because as I said, the the nuns and the monks weren't allowed to. Um, cook or, or buy food for themselves, you could feel how ancient this practice was. You know, you took off your shoes and you want, went barefoot so that you were connected with the earth with a, with a bowl, not quite that big. <laughs> and you walked for your food. You didn't ask for food. You walked with an open bowl. And, um, and so you would get lots of different things. You would get uh, these beautifully prepackaged meals that clearly the women have been cooking since early, early morning hours. And sometimes you get bags of Lay's potato chips. And, um, and there, was a, there, was a, there was a situation in which I got oranges, fruit, citrus. And, and that's one of my favorite um, um, uh, things and so um, I was just savoring the taste of it. In the monastery, there's also a dining hall, and um, the dining hall also had fruit. Uh, so the dining hall cooked like when when it was raining or when there was a special occasion that 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 monks ate in the dining hall. And I began to notice over the days that the oranges that I was receiving tasted better than the oranges from the dining hall. I mean, on a, on a continual basis. And so I would do this experiment of going out on alms round and getting an orange and taking an orange from the dining room. And sure enough, there was this weird experience and I thought I was having this, you know, brain fart. And so I went to my preceptor and I said, I described 
what I was noticing. And he said, hmm, because most Asian teachers are very uncommunicative. Hmm. What you're tasting is your mindfulness and their loving kindness. Not something that I can understand, but something that I experienced. Deepa Ma, who is one of the highly realized women teachers of the last century, teacher of many of our Western teachers, said, from my own experience, there is no difference between loving kindness and mindfulness. And the kicker is, when we become more and more aware, it's not always a pleasant experience. Sometimes we become more and more aware of how much suffering there is. This is the first noble truth arising in greater and greater depth in our consciousness. We become aware of how uncomfortable the body is. And we become aware of the discomfort and the pain of external circumstances, including the injustice and the oppression in the world. But we know, I think, from many of our lived experiences that sometimes the path to less suffering is through more suffering. It's not linear. And that this practice invites us incrementally. It may sound trivial, but it begins in your sitting practice with even just this practice that we call the itch. You know, when the itch arises, what do we usually do? We want to get rid of it, so we scratch it and it's gone. But how many times in our life do we get rid of all those itches that comes up? You know, just autonomically. Well, in, in the sitting practice, you know that this itch is not going to kill you. You know that there is another side to it. You won't know that other side, though, until you sustain your awareness through it and, the possi and to see the possibility of the other side. So the invitation is simply be mindful, simply meeting those sensations which can be incredibly unpleasant with your mindfulness and just watch them without needing to react. How often do we experience, you know, that unpleasant sensation or the, the itch in our relationships or our jobs or, or just in our lives? Tungpulu Sayadaw, who um, uh, offered that walking meditation that, that Pascal offered us, said that if you know it, meaning if you're mindful of it, and it being suffering, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round, meaning the conditioned mind will just be working on its unconsciousness.
So these mindfulness trainings have recently, ironically, been offered to um, some of our military that have been involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, ostensibly to be preventative of post-traumatic stress disorder and suicidal risk. But this was in the, in the New York Times and I thought it was interesting. So it describes one guy, a veteran of several deployments to Iraq, said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxiously loud. The vet said, at one time I might, at one time maybe I would have thrown the guy out of the window and gone for his jugular. But guided by these new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. This is actually an example of reconditioning because it's not just about the situation in the bar. It's about what he's going to do with it when he goes to Iraq or goes to that place of conflict. Mindfulness is inviting us to notice the impulse and not need to act on it. This is a highly developed ability in human evolution. I don't know of any other species that can do that. Noticing the impulse and not needing to react. Remember the practice of the itch. Noticing the impulse and not needing to react. And with that, mindfulness is not only about kindness and forgiveness, the kindness of, you know, of, that, of that offering of the beer or the forgiveness of, of the apology, but it creates the landscape for more kindness and forgiveness to emerge. So uh, some of our teachers at, at East Bay Meditation Center offer mindfulness teachings in the schools in Oakland. And I love this story of, um, in downtown Oakland, one of, uh, at, so 15 minutes, you know, during homeroom before each day, and there was this nine-year-old boy that came up uh, to the meditation teacher and, and said, guess what? I just realized that when I get angry, I don't have to do anything. That's amazing. You know, that actually is, that is actually a wonderful um, possibility for downtown Oakland. Often in these, in our life, we have more complicated experiences with the 10,000 sorrows, especially multiple hurts or, or things that trigger past experiences that can magnify, you know, the, um, the current experience. 
this interwoven practice of, of mindfulness and metta offers an opportunity to examine and even intervene in this unconscious conditioning, to notice the impulses with, with just mindfulness and kindness, with curiosity, not needing to actually jump in and do anything about it. So again, I had an experience of this in, in, in my um, time in Thailand. Uh, after about three weeks of a meditation practice um, came the actual ordination ceremony. So you actually practiced so that they had a sense of what your practice was, what your, your, um, sense, your meditation was. And, um, and so um, they had this ceremony, uh, you wear white, and, but the main thing is, is that they shave your, your head. And I know that actually some of you have been coming to this retreat long enough to remember that I had hair that came down to my shoulders. Um, this was about five, five, six years ago. And so it was a big thing to get rid of all of that hair. And um, uh, so the ceremony was um, all of the Western students um, uh, took, cut a lock off. I, I let Stephen actually cut the ponytail off. And then everybody took um, a lock of hair off. And then the monk um, who was in charge actually began shaving the head with this, you know, old Gillette razor that your father had that you unscrewed from the bottom and put the double-edged blade. And, um, you know, they, they lathered it up. And it was like cutting through redwood trees. I could feel the, um, I could feel the, uh, uh, the texture of the hair being cut off at its roots. And my mind went into all these memories of hair, of how I uh, envisioned you know, myself to be. I, um, I had flashbacks of arguing with my parents to keep it long and then and then when I was going for my ordination, arguing what, with my mother because she didn't want me to cut it. Yeah. And um, of, um, of, of, um, uh, of how I um, cultivated how I looked in the world. And the memories went back to this point when I was about 13 and I remembered the moment that I decided to grow that hair long. Because I was standing in front of a mirror and the thoughts that were coming through me was, if it's this hard to be a person of color in the world, I am not going to be gay. I hated how I looked. I hated who I was. And I was looking into that mirror and I, I was saying, I'm going to change the way that I look because I couldn't, I couldn't bear, you know, the information or the, or the experiences that I was having as this young gay boy. And 
these memories were just flooding through my consciousness while this, you know, there was nothing else to do. It was like I couldn't, I couldn't stop the razor from going through my head. And I, I had tears that were flowing down my face. Stephen was taking pictures and I, I'm sure that people were thinking that, you know, this is tears of joy and, you know, what a, what a wonderful experience that you're going into. And I was... But the mindfulness practice was just inviting me to look at this profound piece that I had not, that I had buried in my consciousness. And looking at all the sensations moment to moment, you know, the rage of, of, of that, that this, um, um, that this moment had actually defined 38 years of my life until this moment of awareness. And as the hair started getting cut, what was let go of was the need to grow it in the first place. And I was able to be present for all of those emotions that I couldn't be present for when I was 13. It, I just didn't have the skills, I didn't have that capacity. But I could do it at that point. And I could see clearly, you know, what the suffering was around my identity, around, around the pain in, the, in, in my life. And each time that, that, that those sensations of my heart breaking because of either the rage or the sadness or the um, self-judgment, eventually there was this truth that I came to that in that moment I could really feel that I was this beautiful person that didn't have to be anyone else. And I don't always, you know, I didn't, I don't always carry that with me. But, but the fact that I've gone there once allows me to go again. Part of the, part of sati or mindfulness is the capacity to remember. The capacity to remember that we've had moments of freedom. This path is called a purification, a purification of our hearts and our minds. But we don't have a choice of what we purify. What comes up in our life to purify is what arises in our life. And sometimes this internalized suffering goes really to the very core of who we think we are. And the possibility of our practice, of this mindfulness practice, meeting these moments for what they are, not pushing them away, not trying to change them to a more pleasant experience, invites us into exploring that we are so much more than our suffering.
So as we move through these experiences, whether it's the joys or the sorrows, we get to see the other side, just like that practice of the itch. It sounds, it sounds trivial in terms of the comparison, but this is the practice of strengthening the capacity of our awareness to be present for whatever arises. My mother is 94, and recently, um, you know, with the tragedy of Tyler Clemente jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and a lot of the, um, uh, the stories of bullying in our schools, um, at one point she turned to me and, and said, were you ever bullied? And I, my, I, I took a breath because I could, feel, I could feel a choice. I could feel myself go into, oh, she's not going to understand this. So I just, you know, I could just say no and just let it, let it go. You know, she's never under, uh, this is a woman that had such a hard time with our commitment ceremony. And, or I could just be mindful that this is, this is a question she's never asked before. And so I said, you know, yeah, I was, especially, you know, during that, that sixth, seventh, eighth grade period. And, you know, we went over some of those, those times. And she turned to me and said, why didn't you tell us? And then she, pro- she proceeded to describe you know, in her own way, how she felt that my father was bullied when he was in school in China and that they um, had his uncle walk him to school every day. And she said, I would have done that for you. And regardless of whether that was a fantasy or not, whether that could have actually happened, It was an amazing experience for me to just be there and let the moments unfold, not assuming where she was going to be. And after all these decades, it wasn't too late to hear those words. It was actually worth the wait. Why we get together to practice is so profound. Because the preciousness of our practice is is not just the potential of our own healing, our personal journey, but really our collective healing as, as wounded communities. The healing of our own experience affects everyone around us. We do this practice 
for our own happiness, for our loved ones, but really for our, all of our communities. And, you know, there will be future suffering. That's the first noble truth. There is suffering in this world and there will be more injuries, but they don't have to stick. We can allow our mindfulness to support this journey through them. And it will be different for each of us. So one more story around this aspect of mindfulness and healing. Because, you know, I tell these stories not because I think that you're going to relate to me as a gay man, which you might. And I don't tell these stories because um, some of them involve uh, me being a person of color, although you might relate to that. I tell these stories because I'm I'm hoping that as a person who has experienced suffering and who suffers, that you can relate it to your own suffering in whatever ways you have that experience. Because these are not stories about suffering. These are stories about the end of suffering. They are stories about the third noble truth, not the first. So a couple of years ago, um, in downtown San Francisco, I was going to meet a friend for dinner, and I needed to go to the ATM. And so I, you know, I was impatient, and there was a line at the ATM, and you know, I was rushing and got to the ATM, and across the, across it was uh, scrawled all of this anti-Asian hate graffiti, and you know, sort of my world melted. And I, I could feel my mind slip into that 13-year-old again. And this is what I was referring to about, about um, memories and, and experiences triggering previous experiences. We might call them trauma. We might call them just, you know, these injuries that reoccur in our lives, this oppression. And I just, you know, I froze for a moment and I could feel the, that heat, that, that, that rage, you know, when your, your, your vision goes like into like blurred mode. And, and I began to notice all these physical sensations and I, and I, and I tried to keep my practice to what was un, unfolding and the vibration, and, and it was, you know, the dinner completely sort of dropped away from my mind. And I began to see, this is, a, uh, this is um, uh, was on the corner of Ninth and Irving, so there were a lot of um, Asian people around, and I saw the older Asian couples walking, and I, and I, um, I saw them as my own parents, and wondering the harm that they experience from this kind of, you know, um, anti-hate graffiti. And I saw the younger Asian folks walking on the sidewalk and I related them to my brothers and sisters and my peers and, and you know, my heart broke over and over again, sort of staying in that pain 
And eventually, I saw the pain of the perpetrator and I saw how wounded that person had to have been in order to create this this effect. And so the point of my story is, is that it didn't prevent me from doing what I felt I needed to do in terms of contacting the bank and I called the Asian um, Law Caucus and to find out if there was any other hate um, stuff happening. But I could move through that experience holding a larger perspective with the one thing that can create freedom. And that's love. Because I, I felt that, that, that kindness towards that person who um, was the perpetrator. And the invitation of this loving kindness practice is really to hold the practice itself with kindness. You know, it's not about achieving some kind of perfection or some kind of goal. So if I cannot be loving in this moment, can I be kind? And if I can't be kind in this moment, can I be non-judgmental? And if I can't be non-judgmental in this moment, can I at least not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? This is the invitation of our practice to do the best we can wherever we are, whatever arises. I love this quote by Trungpa, who um, was the lead, um, the founder of the Shambhala tradition. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. We not only change our lives, but we change our relationships in the world, and we change the world itself. Uh, one of the 
practitioners who comes to the people of color retreats um, lives in Tallahassee and I am told that Tallahassee has one of the highest concentrate used to have one of the highest concentrations of, of plantations uh, in the deep south and so there are these um, beautiful trees that with moss hanging down from them and and um, she was describing to me how everybody talks about how beautiful the trees are, but culturally there's a completely different experience of these trees. And so when she began to learn the metta practice, she brought the metta practice underneath these trees in which African-American men had been lynched and did... Um, uh, did these practices with her community and and she invited me to do a weekend in Tallahassee and we called it Compassionate Transformation, beginning to heal the legacy of slavery. And people asked me, uh, why did you do that? You know, you're a, you're a gay Chinese man and you know, that's not your, necessarily your legacy. But we can be agents for each other's healing if we're mindful. This is the practice and refuge of Sangha. Because I know if I have an experience that's too painful to hold, that, that is just flooding my consciousness, it more than helps for it to be held by allies and spiritual friends. It helps me come closer to that pain so that I can actually move through it. The healing of oppression and injury is not just the issue of the communities who have been targets of that oppression. So I stand with my brothers and my sisters and my trans soulmates because I need them to stand with me in the healing of my own experience. The suffering of sexism and the violence to, towards women are not just issues for women. They're issues for all of us. The suffering of transphobia are not, is not just the issues of trans, non-binary identified folks, but for all of us. And likewise, the issue of racism is not just the issue of people of color. The issue of any suffering in the world is not just about that targeted group. It is about all of us because we are mutually dependent on each other. What did I quote from Dr. King that first night? I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. This practice invites us to stand in community with those who suffer in order that all of us might heal.
to cover each other's backs with a cloak of kindness. Each time you practice your awareness practice, you are transforming your experience, but you're also transforming the world. Can you be aware of that? Are you willing to be aware of that? That it's just not about our personal practice of, towards enlightenment or freedom. There is a direct connection of what we're doing in this retreat with how we live in the world. The creation of peace in the world that so desperately needs it is no different than the creation of peace within our own lives. And this practice is not about some postponement into some unknown future of our freedom. We are creating moments of freedom right now. Right now for ourselves and for our future generations. This is, this is how huge our practice is. This is the possibilities of this great journey. And it is possible. Mindfulness is possible. Kindness is possible. Forgiveness is possible. The Buddha said he would not teach that which we could not do. And freedom is possible. So let's sit for a moment. Inviting your awareness to let go of all the words, allowing yourself to simply sink into your present moment, returning to the silence, returning to awareness and the possibility of freedom in this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.